Hey, welcome to Esther's Breeze, where we sit back, relax, and shoot the breeze. I want to thank you all so much that we're a little late for being here. A special thank you to Jenny DeHaim from PAX Management, to Robert D'Alessio, who is my mentor and dear friend, and to Fernando Renzo, who is doing our back room technician stuff. So if anything goes wrong, we'll blame him. I'm really excited about tonight's guest. He is a hilarious stand-up comic. He is a wonderful storyteller. And for 17 years, he worked on the David Letterman Show as the audience warm-up comedian. 11 of those years, he was the stand-up comic talent coordinator. He's been in numerous films, including Tracy Morgan's 30 Years to Life. He is also the voice for many animated series, including Dr. Katz. He's been on numerous TV shows, including Louie on FX, which actually won an award for that episode. He's ran a comedy club called Paper Moon, and he's headed many comedy festivals. The man is Eddie Brill, and I could go on and on and on. I'm going to show you a little clip of his work. The next guest is a uh, very funny gentleman. By the way, I'm glad you folks are in a good mood tonight. I really am. Uh, on October 18th, this man will be performing at the Throckmorton Theater in uh, Mill Valley, California. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back our good friend, Eddie Brill. Eddie, come on out. Everybody, nice to see you. You know, when I was growing up, my grandma used to always say, the truth will set you free. Then she went to prison for perjury. <laughs> ah, I'm lying. <laughs> you know, if you haven't been lied to lately, try online dating. <laughs> Nobody tells the truth in online dating. Sometimes they ask questions like, what's the worst thing you ever did? And you can't tell the truth there. Sometimes they, uh... <laughs> I thought you would know, but... Sometimes they lie about their age, sometimes they lie about their weight, sometimes they don't have a picture of themselves. So, so sometimes it's like a horse. <laughs> You're so insecure, you gotta show your horse? Years ago, I tried it and I went online and, I, and the girl in the picture, I set up a date with her, she was 28 in the picture. When she showed up, she was 52. 52. I thought it was the girl's mother showing up to tell me she couldn't make it. <laughs> Let's bring him on, Eddie Brill. Hey there. Good to see hey, you. Nice to see you as well. Thank you so much for being here. It's, it's my pleasure. You know, about that clip, there's a yes. couple of things I can tell you about that clip that's very interesting. I would love to when, hear it. When Dave, when Dave gave me the introduction, he was doing a tribute to Johnny Carson. Because Johnny oh. Carson, whenever a comedian would come on the show, Johnny would say... I hope you guys are in a good mood tonight. And that was Johnny's way of getting the crowd going. So Dave started the thing and then he realized, wait, I'm gonna do the thing that Johnny used to do. So he, he said, I hope you guys are in a really good mood tonight, which was really nice because that does elicit some cheers from the crowd, you know, and, and it gets you a better intro. That's one. Second, I came out to the song Lies. The band played Lies, there, 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 Lies by the Knickerbockers. Right. Um, the reason I chose that song is because my whole set was about lying, as you saw at the beginning. Right. Now, on the show, Paul Schaefer and the band, whenever a guest was on the show, Paul would 
have the band play a song that had to do with either the guest's history or a movie they were in or just the, you know, it was really cool. But the comedians got to choose their own song when they came out. So I chose that one. I met, um, And then there was a part in it where I, go, I said something. You know, what happens is, is there's producers all through the show and every producer looks right. at different guests and what they're going to talk about. Well, of course, the show knew my set and they knew I was going to talk about online dating. Well, the lead guest that day was my dear friend, Artie Lang, the great comedian and purveyor at the Howard Stern show. And they allowed Artie to do a whole set about online dating, which threw me off because they didn't tell me, you know, they should have said to either one of us, one of you is going to do the online dating material and the other's not. So what I did is I came out to the crowd and, and set, did a line that Artie did earlier. And they eventually understood what I was doing, as you can hear Yes. Fire going by here. Um, it's New York. I'm in New York City. And so that's why, you know, but if you're seeing the clip for the first time, you're like, oh, did he forget something? Or, you know, what's the inside joke? But I was actually, I made the audience laugh because I called back a joke that Artie had done earlier in the show. So that's a little sort of history of that clip. That's great. You know, you've met so many celebrities, I guess, while you, you were doing that show. There must have been a couple that really thrilled you. Like, Tell us yeah, about I mean, you know, I'm as much as, you know, I'm in that world of, you know, show business and you're at Letterman and every star in the world and every great band comes through. I'm still a fanboy. You know, I, I you know, I'm, I love Elvis Costello. When he was on the show, I was nervous, you know, to talk to him, even though I had met him times because I was like, you know, but I got to meet some of the my heroes, you know, Don Rickles and I became close because of the show. He's my favorite comedian. And, you know, and we had a rule at the Letterman show that I broke that said you can't go to the dressing rooms of these people if you don't know who they are or get permission through some way. Well, Rickles was there and I'm downstairs, you know, waiting, to, um, I don't know, maybe a half hour before I have to go to work and do the warm up. And I go, Rickles is here. I got to, so I snuck up to the dressing room and I went there and I said, Mr. Rickles, <laughs> my name is Nervous Nelly. No, my name is Eddie Brill, and I'm a stand-up comedian, and I work at the show. And he grabs me by the hand and brings me in, and we sit and we talk for almost the whole half hour I have. And he couldn't have been nicer, and he had his assistants with him, and they, they treated me like family. And they wanted to know much about me as I wanted to know about them. It was so lovely. And then, you know, Rickles is on the show, and then that night he talks to Dave about me and... Uh, and says how much he loved me and thought, you know, my father, who didn't really want me to be a comedian, his favorite comedian was Rickles. So Rickles said lovely things and my father like cried. He was touched. He's like, oh my oh. God, you know, it was really nice. So, and it was really good. And Rickles, whenever he'd come on the show, I'd go up to the dressing room. We talked for a long time. And, and then, you know, as he got older, he was a little more feeble and we have had older, older guests, you know, people who are getting to be 80s and 90s. And what we would do to make their life lovelier was when the show uh, came back from the commercial break, we put them in the seat already, didn't make them walk out to the crowd. You know, it, it was a, I thought it was a beautiful touch. And so Rickles in the last few episodes, you know, they sat him early. And when the show was over, I would he would look for me, I grab his hand and let him off the set because it was a little bit of a riser. And the, the very last time he was on the show, he was very sick. And I kind of knew that it would be the last time I'd see him. And it was just, you know, I mean, I would have never had this relationship. I mean, maybe, but I, I don't think so. 
you know, so the Rickles thing was very special to me and to my father, who of course. was really happy. I met yeah. Sophia Loren, who was the really? woman of my dreams. Yeah. Um, literally, <laughs> literally. My father's dreams, too, by the way. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, we, talk about her. she was such a great actress and she was this incredibly beautiful, swarthy brunette, you know, and it was the, all the she was just like all the women in my family, like sharp and funny and and smart and, you know, put everyone in their place who wasn't nice to everybody. You know, she really had that going for her. So, you know, all my friends from my age group would have the Farrah Fawcett poster came out. Right. Was, I remember there was like a red bathing suit and her nipples yes, were Yes, I know it well. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone had, but I had, part two. I had Sophia Loren take up my whole door. So really? when she came on the show, I, I, I let her know and she couldn't, she was like, that's so sweet. And she kissed my oh, hand. I'm like, oh my God. Did you God. wash it? Did you, <laughs> did you not uh, wash your hand? Eventually, for uh, but for about oh, yeah. seven or eight years, I, <laughs> I never took a shower, so you know. But that was a, that's a different story. Yeah, that's good. I mean, so many people, so many stories. So the, I, I, you know, on your Facebook page, you write a lot about your experiences and your life, and and there was another story related to that was the Paul McCartney story when yeah. you met Paul McCartney. Well, you know, in all the commercial breaks at the Letterman show, we would go to the desk. Myself, uh, another comedian writer, Bill Sheft, and uh, be. <clears throat> you know, Dave, me and Bill, we we would, you know, the producer of the next segment would come up and they'd talk about what was going to happen. But, you know, there were also times when we, you know, didn't have anything really to talk about. We talk about the Beatles or we talk about sports or we talk about, you know, what's going on in our lives. I just came back from working a comedy club for the weekend and the comedy works in Montreal. And like, who were you on the show with? And we'd talk about it. And it was a lot of fun. Well, you know, everyone was really happy that McCartney was making his appearance. The, it was the first time he, the, McCartney was, of course, at the Ed Sullivan Theater back in, you know, back in the day in 1964. Yeah. But, you know, he'd only been in that theater once to do like an MTV um, unplugged show. So, but it wasn't the whole hoo-ha that you have when you have the Ed Sullivan Theater all lit up and you're doing a show. So this was his, really his first trip back. And Letterman was excited because Letterman was a huge, is a huge Beatles fan. And I remember he said, hi, Christine. Nice to see you. Um, I just, I remember, you know, Letterman told me the story how he, in 1965, got to see the Beatles in Indianapolis growing up. I mean, we're all huge fans. He had, you know, we, the, you know, it, we couldn't have, like, it was Christmas time. I would buy him like a Beatles book. You know, it was easy to oh. buy him those kind of gifts because right. I knew how much he loved the Beatles. And we all did. Me, Bill, you know, all of us. So McCartney was coming on the show, you know, he had the crack team and they're putting all the questions together and all the ideas and what we're going to do. And he said, just said to us passing, he said, what do you, what else do you think I should ask McCartney? And I said, you know, the thing that, you know, the week before McCartney was going to be on the show, uh, Michael Jackson had passed. And my first thought was, well, you know, Michael Jackson owned a lot of the Beatles records. And uh, what's going to happen? And my first thought was not what's going on with Michael Jackson, was what's going to happen to the Beatles songs, you know? So, um, so that was what I told, you know, maybe you can bring that story up or whatever. So the first segment goes by and it's really great. And Letterman and McCartney are, you know, working it out together and getting really comfortable with each other. And they go to a commercial break. Now, Bill wasn't there, I don't think, at the time. And I'm at the desk by myself with Dave and Paul McCartney. And Dave leaves. And to go to talk to one of the producers, like probably say, oh, in this segment, we're going to do this or whatever. And I'm standing alone with McCartney and I couldn't believe it. So 
I said, hey, you know, nice to meet you. Um, you know, Michael Jackson. He goes, oh, I was wondering what was going to happen with the very good McCartney impression, by the way. Right. Um, <laughs> what was, you know, Mr. Brill, you know, I only think of the cartoon, you know, Paul McCartney. And so he said, uh, he said, yeah, I thought of that too when Michael Jackson died. I was wondering what's going to happen. We talked for a minute or so, but then the commercial break came back and ran off. So now Dave comes back and they're having a chat. And then that conversation came up and McCartney was ready for it because him and I talked about it. And it was really great. And it was a great segment. And he talked all about his relationship with um, Michael and, and his sort of observations and perceptions of the relationship and the music and the song. And then after that, I went on to the marquee where they were filming, they were recording, they were doing two songs. And then they, they, he put on a concert for the crowd after the show was over. And I was downstairs, you know, walking around. We had a little area for us watching McCartney and I had just hung out with him and I knew what his last song was. So just when the last song was about halfway through, I found a taxi to get me home because I knew a million people on the streets. I'd never get home for, it'd take me a couple of hours to get home. Um, and uh, I'm in the taxi and all of a sudden I realized what had just happened and I shook <laughs> like a leaf. I more than I shook like a whole tree, like the peaches on a tree. I was like, and the taxi driver said, are you okay? I went, oh my God, I am so okay. But it was just so, I didn't realize what was happening while it was happening, but it was just incredible. And he couldn't have been nicer and, you know, I have a photo with um, the back of my head and Paul McCartney. <laughs> the, my, the, it was just so cool. That's, um, you know, you've had so many encounters like that. And when I first heard you on Clubhouse, um, I think it was the Comedy Lounge. Uh, yeah. Club. Yes, That's what it was. Yeah, around. and you were telling this amazing story about Robert De Niro. Tell us about <laughs> it. It was well, hilarious. Um, well, you know, when I was a kid, I loved movies, and I was in Florida, and uh, I was born in New York, but I grew up in South Florida. I moved there, which was South Montreal, if you know anything about Hollywood, Florida. Yes. Um, yes thank you, Bobby. Um, honored to be here with you, with a U in the name, an extra letter that you Canadians and the Brits use. Yeah. It makes me happy. It's <laughs> true. I'm so honored, honored to be watching you. <laughs> you too, Bobby. So, um, so yeah, so in Florida, you know, I'm down there and, uh, you know, I go to the movie theaters and I'm too young to go see this movie that's coming out called, called Mean Streets with Robert De Niro. It's supposedly, I think it was the second film and it was so powerful and so brilliant and directed by Martin Scorsese and, uh, so I read all about it in the paper. Read all about it. I read all about it in the paper. And I wanted to go, but I was 14, or it was just the day before my 14th birthday. I think it was. It was like 72 or 1973, something like that. Um, and I'm out in the parking lot like a, <laughs> like, you know, like a drug dealer. Hey, can you get me in the movie? I was asking these adults because you had to be a certain age to get in or you had to have a guardian. So finally, after like whoring myself for a while, well, offering money for people to do it people brought me in and i got to see Dean streets and it was one of the greatest films and made all the difference in my life and it was dreamt of meeting de niro there's a movie he did called bang the drum slowly which is one of the greatest sports movies of all time that a lot of people don't know about it was him and michael moriarty and i was working at a movie theater by then and i got to see the movie a million times and the more i saw de niro's work the more i just loved what he did all right so i'm gonna put a little uh pause there <clears throat> because in 1987 I moved to Los Angeles um, I you know I was coming back and forth to work at the comedy store in LA 
And the the second night that I was in L.A., where after I had moved there, I got asked by this couple after the show, hey, we'd love to have you do the show for the Shriners on Saturday is what I heard. And I said, sure. And it was like a couple hundred bucks. And I was so broke. I had like 35 cents. And it was $200 was a million dollars. Oh, I'd love to do whatever, you know. And the Shriners, if you know anything about them, they're like the Buffalo Club, the water Buffalo Club that Fred, Fred Flintstone belongs to. You know, they wear the fez, the hat with the fez and the whole thing. And and so, you know, what the hell? You know, I had done all, I've done all kinds of shows for different groups like that. I uh, the Elks Club in Florida, I was teen of the month or something like that at the Elks Club and you know, so I'm familiar with this. So I'm driving, and I never have been in California. I, I borrowed my friend's car, went over to this venue, which I thought was a hotel. Turns out I misheard them. It wasn't for the Shriners. They sent me to Shriner, the Shrine Auditorium. Now, if you know the Shrine Auditorium, it's an 8,800-seat theater where the Academy Awards are held. I misheard them. So they wanted me to perform on a show at the Shrine Auditorium. I'm like, I think there's something, there's a mistake here, or they're just pranking me, or who knows what's going on. Knock at the door, and people open the door. I go, hi, my name's Eddie Brill. Oh, Mr. Brill, follow us. And I'm like, Mr. Brill? <laughs> <laughs> the only time I've ever been called Mr. Brill is my mom, like, mad at me, you know. Mr. Right. Brill, get in your room. Or Edward, <laughs> you know. And uh, she knows I'm Eddie after her father. So anyway, so um, they take me up these stairs and I go, where are we going? <laughs> you know, are you going to shoot me? Are you going to prank me? They no, I said, so we're going to go. We're going to take you to your dressing room. I'm like dressing room. You know, I'm sleeping on a futon in Glendale. And now all of a sudden I'm going to a dressing room and I don't have anyone with me that I know. Like no one's going to believe this. So I'm passing the other dressing rooms and it's the coasters, the 60s man, the coasters and the Shirelles. Wow. And Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry and um uh, Jimmy Stewart's name on one of the door oh and I'm like what and I go into my <laughs> I see my name on a door and I open the door and I close it and I shit myself well <laughs> but I'm what am I doing here and the room is pretty much empty except like a sink and a table chair and on the table is a list of the order of the show <clears throat> I look at the list and I'm following Jimmy Stewart like what, <laughs> what's going on here so the stage manager comes in and he says, hi, nice to meet you. And we're happy you can do this last minute. I go, who was I replacing? Oh, Joey Bishop. He's one of the, one of the Rat Pack, you know, like one of the Sinatra guys was sick and they needed a comedian. And so I'm the comedian. Couldn't believe it. I go, what does Jimmy Stewart do? He says, he reads poetry. Why well, the show with John Carson? He comes on often and reads his poetry. It's like, oh, my God. So they bring me downstairs to the stage a little bit before my segment. And I see that the MC, the offstage mic guy, is a comedian, Vic Dunlop. And Vic and I are old friends. And it was so nice to see someone I knew because I was freaking out. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? I'd never performed. I performed once for 600 people. Hilarities in Cleveland had this big room. But before, other than that, 200, 175 tops for me. This was 8,800 people packed. So Vic gave me a nice piece of advice. He said, Eddie, when you go out there, uh, be deliberate with your, your vocals, with your words, because it's going to take a while for the words to get all the way to the back and then come all the way back, which was a great piece of advice. So now the stage manager's talking to me, and there's Jimmy Stewart on stage, the guy on, who's opening for me. And he's up there, and he's reading his poetry, beautiful trees and flowers, and, um, you know, I love animals. And, you know, it's just really great. He was known for his poetry. He used to do it on the Johnny Carson show all yes. the time. The tree yes. is 
green and the birds fly. <laughs> I know. That was Jimmy Stewart. You know? And I was like, oh, my God. So they tell me, look, when Jimmy Stewart, when he's done, start making your way to the middle of the stage. It's a big stage. So they bring me up, and Jimmy Stewart's walking off, and I'm walking past him. And um, I look at Jimmy Stewart. He looks at me, and I just I don't know what to do. So I give him a head nod. He gives me a head nod. I'm like, yeah, I got a head nod from Jimmy Stewart. So luckily, I go out there, and luckily, Vic gave me great advice. And I really did well. I had 12 minutes, smashed it up. The crowd went crazy. I walk off the stage, and there's Jimmy Stewart on the side of the stage going, very funny, Eddie. Very, very funny. I'm like, oh, my God. And then Jerry Lee Lewis pushes Jimmy Stewart out of the way. It's a very funny son. <laughs> I like to take my picture with you tonight. And I'm like, where is everyone I know? Where, <laughs> exactly. is the whole, where is everyone I know? Is this happening? Is it a dream? I couldn't believe it was happening. Yeah. And I ended up, weirdly enough, I ended up going back to the comedy store because I had a set like at one in the morning and they were drunk and heckling and screaming at me, you suck. And I'm like, I just worked with Jimmy Stewart. So don't, don't give me so. So anyway, all right. So now let's take you back. I just wanted to give you the Jimmy yeah. Stewart story for a reason to go back to the De Niro thing. So the, the night, I remember the date I saw Mean Streets. It was October 15th. I, I should have looked up the year, but I think it's 73 or 72. And I remember the day because it was the day before my birthday. And I was excited that I still was going to be too young to go to the movie, but I knew it was, the, it was my birthday present to myself. I took my paper route money and I <laughs> went to the movie theater on my bike. But anyway, so so now um, I it's 9-11 happens and um, it's October now, a month later. And my old roommate from, and my college friend and roommate in college and after college, Dennis Leary, was very involved with the fire department. And his cousin Jerry had uh, died horribly in horrible fire in Worcester, Mass, and a bunch of friends, and the, it was just tragic, of course. And Dennis had just went uh, above and beyond to start helping firemen all over the world. He just uh, did that. And after 9/11, he threw a party um, at this place on October 15th, the day before my birthday, um, to uh, raise money, uh, do like an auction charity thing for the firemen uh, and their wives or the fire, the wives and their, their families, you know, men and women and the children. So my girlfriend at the time took me to a play on Broadway and then we were going to go over to the party and help raise money and all that kind of stuff. And then, so she, on the way there, she says, look, I'm not feeling good. I'm tired. You go and have fun with your friends. All right. So I go to the people are cheering us. Yeah, <laughs> so I hear that. We love the story already. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I think NYU kids. I those get off my lawn, crazy kids. <laughs> so you know. So I, so anyway. So I walk into the party, and the first people I see are my two best friends, Chris and Adam. They're my two best friends. They're great musicians. They wrote and sang with Dennis Leary, the asshole song, and all. You've seen them in all his videos, and. They're my, we're, all the four of us are like best friends from college. So just as I look over, I, I, for the first time in my life in person, there's Robert De Niro and he's just to my left and he's like shaking a fireman's hand as he's leaving. And I couldn't believe it. And he looks at me and he looks at me for a second and I don't know what to do. So I remember the Jimmy Stewart thing. I gave him a head nod. And instead of a head nod, he just like, he lit up and he grabbed me and hugged me and wrapped his arms around me and gave me the best hug of my life and didn't wow. let go. And the whole place is looking at me like, who the hell is De this guy that De Niro is making love to, you know, on the dance floor? 
my friends who had I, I was walking to, you could see their face like cartoons, like the jaws drop, they're burrowing, they're, you know, <laughs> wahoo. How does Eddie know De Niro? He never told us. And, right. and I mean, really holding on. And, you know, they, you know, so De Niro leaves. And I'm, so I walk over to my friends and I go, they go, how do you know De Niro? I go, I don't. I never met him. They go, are you kidding me? You were fucking him on the dance floor. And I'm like, wait a second. I, you know, I don't know. So now everyone at this party, except for me and my two friends, are the most famous people <laughs> of all New York. You know, all the Soprano cast is there and my, Matt Dillon oh, wow. and, you know, everybody in New York, you know, um, you know, Richard Gere, his Cariotis, who I think they were dating at the time. I mean, everybody who's everybody in the New York entertainment scene was there and they were just, you know, they were just raising money and they raised a fortune, which was really I'm wonderful. Sure. And they're all looking at me throughout the night, like who's who's that? This is the guy De Niro. The guy De Niro. You know, they're all looking at me. So I'm at the bar by myself, getting a beer, and some guy comes up to me, and I recognize him because as a kid I watched The Mod Squad, and this guy was Link from The Mod Squad. Cool. So yeah. And so he comes up to me, and I could tell that he wants to ask me how I know De Niro. He's having small talk with me. It's Clarence Williams the Third is his real name. So. I, you know, he's like, so what do you do? I'm a comedian, blah, blah, blah. We're talking, great party, yes. And I know he's going to ask me. I'm just waiting for it. And I don't know what to say. So he goes, so how do you know De Niro? <laughs> and I went, oh, I know him from Mean Streets. <laughs> he went, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and uh, it, it seemed like I was probably on the movie with him or right. whatever. But it was, I didn't lie. I, that's how I know De Niro from Mean Streets. It was how I, you know, met De Niro. So years later, De Niro and... Uh, Dustin Hoffman came on the Letterman show as guest, and I got after the show. I talked to De Niro, and um, I said, you know, I don't know if you thought I was Danny Aiello or because Danny Aiello had a son named Jamie, who I was mistaken for before. So I thought oh, okay. maybe he thought I was one of the Aiello boys, but he went, no, I, you know, he was just was in a good mood, and he saw me and just felt like he could hug me, and one of the three best hugs of my whole life. That's, That's amazing. Not family. Doesn't you know. say much about your hugs and your life, but that's no, no. Story. It's uh, well, uh, yeah. You <laughs> got another podcast. Well, you don't know the hugs that I've gotten. Oh, oh that's God. true. Okay, so we'll, we'll we'll talk after. All you, right. You, you bring up Dennis Leary, so I know that you and him were both at Emerson together. Is that correct? Yeah, we okay. At, in Boston. Right. And so you originally went into broadcasting, and then how did you make that switch to comedy? How did that occur? Well, very early on, you know, I went to school to do radio and television, you know, broadcast the news or right. sports or something like that. And very early on, um, I met Dennis and he was putting a comp. He was in a comedy group the year before. He's a year older than myself. Okay. And he said um, he was he was in a comedy group. There's four of them and they were very talented and and, there was, you know, just good people. And they said, let's do a whole thing at the school. And this, you know, because the school was able to bank, we could get banked from the school and run these shows or whatever. So Dennis had to set up a meeting at the Emerson Union, and a bunch of us showed up. And those two guys, Chris and Adam, I told you, they they showed up. They were there for the first time, and the, that we all met that night. And we were ad libbing and doing sketches, and it was just we just clicked like we've known each other our whole lives, and we have known each other our whole lives. Um, from that time and we've all done work with each other. I've been on some dentist things and you know, of course, Chris and Adam and all that kind of stuff. And actually Chris and I, the first, first time I went to Montreal, oh. um, Chris lived in Vermont in Stowe. He's that's where his family was. And we were hanging out, having a good time, I think doing mushrooms or something. I don't know. 
I don't remember. I was doing mushrooms, so I don't remember. But we're in Montreal. Yeah, we're in Silvermont. That's why you don't remember. Yeah, and there was a show. There was a radio station. Shom shom. Oh yeah, that's shom, shom. Yeah, that's our rock station. Oh God, it was such a good. I never forgot that. Shom shom. That's so interesting. And I remember. I don't think they use it anymore, but I do remember when they were using that. It was that so memorable. Jingle. And, go, and tonight in Montreal at the. Uh, there's the you know it was 1977 eight something like that. They go the New York Mets are playing the Expos and Chris and I are Mets fans, so let's go. You show them rocks. <laughs> so we go, we get in the car and we drive to Montreal because it's a two hour drive. We have right. to go through a town called Iberville, which I'll never forget yes. because it smells like cow shit. And you really, <laughs> oh, Iberville there's someone is, from Iberville listening. Well, he didn't really mean listen. that. <laughs> well, and no, it did. And because it was all cow fields, it was like right. what it was, they were growing plants. They were using cow shit as the, yes. the thing. And so it literally was hard. We made a mental note to buy some spray for the way home. because <laughs> We're going to have to go back through Iberville. And so we go to Montreal and we're at the, we get tickets for the game because the Mets and the Expos both sucked back in those days, right. even though at times they were both great and Montreal got ripped off and, uh, my hero is Vladimir Guerrero, and I got to throw out the first pitch at a Montreal Expos game and meet Vladimir Guerrero, which is in a whole other phenomenal story. Oh, my story. God. My, my but, mind is exploding. Yeah. <laughs> but we went, we went to Montreal. So we go to the stadium, and we drink beers. And we drink, like, six beers each because we think we're going to have a six-pack. But we don't realize that the beer in Canada is four times the strength of American beers because we didn't yes. realize we had shit beer in America. Yes, thought, sorry, you, know, you do. I was hammered <laughs> i mean i had a, i had a case of beers case worth of alcohol in my body and i remember there was one point when the guy one of the mets and i thought he hit a home run like jumped up in the air to cheer and then the crowd jumped up i'm like why are they cheering for the mets and the guy <laughs> popped up to short you know what i mean and ended the inning or something you know it was ridiculous and then we drove we got the we went to sandani to have lunch <laughs> And then we drove Saint back. Denis, but I, Saint Denis sounds good to me. Oh, how do you say it? Saint Denis. Saint Denis. Uh, yes. I was trying to be more French. Saint Denis. So anyway, so, we, so we buy spray because we know we have to go back through Iberville. To right. Iberville. Iberville. And, car, and yeah. now Iberville, it, it smelled like shit and spray. So it didn't, <laughs> it didn't help, you know. It was so it was eau de Quebec, basically. It kind of, it, but it was in but yeah, I guess you're right. I guess that's what it would be. Yeah, that is so funny. So who's your favorite comedian? Um, George Carlin was my hero. Richard Pryor, right. you know, those were the guys that influenced me earlier. Lily Tomlin, because of her performance, you know, was great. You know, I love Dave Chappelle and Norm MacDonald and uh, you know, um Brian Regan. I mean, there's so many great my my favorite comedian live that i've ever seen and a lot of people unfortunately don't know how great she is is paula poundstone paula oh, poundstone, i remember her of course she, she's still at it she's she's the best live comic i've ever seen wow and, and i was with a couple of very famous people not long ago having lunch this was just before the pandemic it's not so right. long ago and uh, we were talking about our favorite comics like you're asking me and we all right. said paula poundstone i can't yeah. believe that yeah she's pretty amazing yeah, no, I remember that, and I never knew what happened to her. That's so interesting that you bring her up. Yeah, no, she was she's great, and we know we knew her back in the day because she lived in Massachusetts when we all started. We were in college; I was in college. She lived in Everett, Mass, at the time, I think, and before she moved out to San Francisco. But she's just a she's a genius, you know. And I ran a comedy festival 
uh, called the Great American Comedy Festival yes. in, yeah, Can in Canada, in uh, Nebraska, where Johnny Carson grew up. Yes. And I brought Paula there, and Paula was there the, the most of the 10 years we did. I did it. Uh, Paula was the most popular comic of all the great, and it was big, big stars. And Paula was everybody's favorite. Yeah, I'm not surprised, you know. But is, is she on social media at all? Because I'd, I'd like yeah. to look her I up. Yeah, I see her on Twitter, and she's hilarious okay. on Twitter. And uh, no, no, don't tell me or something on the PBS stuff. She's I forget the name of her show, but she's brilliant. And so if you've never heard of her and you're a young comedian, you got to listen to Paula. And she's the best. She's she, she, She'll ad-lib like, like it's nothing, like it's the whole show. She'll end up changing everything and just being brilliant. And... Uh, you know, I was able, you know, as a booker letter and I got to put her on the show a couple of times, which is really nice. I get to put on my favorites, but not all my favorites put on, you know, didn't have that many spots, but it was great. So when you uh, started the uh, Paper Moon Club, you brought in a lot of up and coming comics <laughs> like Dennis Miller, who was one of my all time favorites. Well, Dennis was on Saturday Night Live and he would come in on one of the nights to practice some of the jokes he was going to do. Um, you know, he he'd come in like and say, Hey, can I do like 15 minutes? And like, of course, and he would work out material he was going to do on Saturday night live the next night kind of thing. Right. So that was, you know, but at the time, you know, Colin Quinn and I were kind of running the, the thing and Colin was there and Susie Essman from Curb Your Enthusiasm, Mario Cantone right. from Sex on the City and Adam Sandler went to NYU down the street. So he would come in and bring in like 30 of his friends, which was great for our crowd. We had a big, bigger crowd when he came in. He would bring guitar and ad lib and, you know, um, it, was, it was great. It was, you know, and a lot of people who became, you know, pretty big. Uh, but it was a comedy club run by comedians, so it was really a great club and people loved coming there. And then some of the other comedy clubs in New York would send their representatives to the club to watch some of these comedians that I booked, like, uh, you know, comics from San Francisco and Chicago. Right. And, you know, all different places that they had never used because they pretty much knew who the big stars on TV were. So what advice would you give to uh, somebody who wants to become a comic, somebody who wants to get into the field and be a stand-up? Well, the easy way to joke about it is say, get out. But the truth is, if you love something <laughs> as much as... Comedy yeah. is not for everybody. Every not yeah, Wait, wait, don't tell me. Thank you, Martha. That's the Paula Poundstone uh, thing. But right. the, um, you know, it. I I love my job so much. I mean, it's the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. And if that's your dream... Don't listen to anybody. Just follow that dream. And uh, the most important thing is to get stage time. And as you know, during the pandemic, it's been really hard. And doing stand-up on Zoom is so not great. Because first of all, there's a, you're lacking a lot of the feedback, the sort of dance you do with the audience you can't really do. Yeah. And that's so essential to comedy. And, you know, the nonverbal communications skills and sets, you know, but it is something. It is a way to, you know, I, I suggest you write all the time. And yeah. that you you think you know you think about the stuff you think about being your most authentic self and you know I tell that to all uh, comics that they need to you know there was there's a great quote that or a great story quote that about Michelangelo and they asked him how did you make the beauty of David the statue of David out of that uh, block of marble and he said I just chipped away at the pieces that weren't him huh. you, that's how you become the best possible you the best possible comedian to chip away at all the bullshit that we've been fed our whole lives and to just be our most authentic selves. And I, you know, I think that's the best way to tell comedians and don't listen to people who tell you not 
first of all, there are no rules. I mean, you know, the rules are there's no rules. Someone told Andy Kaufman, oh, you got to do joke, set up punchline. We wouldn't have Andy Kaufman. We wouldn't have oh, Lily Tomlin, right. you know, if we if we told them how to do comedy like everybody else. If you come up with something that nobody's come up with and people don't like it because they're scared, they're scared of somebody <laughs> who's a little bit different. Fuck them, <laughs> you know. Just, just do, it's your dream. Live it. You have one life. You know about and do it. It is the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, doing stand-up comedy, the 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 feedback, the feeling, the it's it's pretty powerful and it's pretty amazing. You actually helped create the comedy writing program at Emerson. Is that correct? Yeah. Back in the day, when we first came up with our comedy group, we were doing sketch and not stand-up. We were doing you know improv and sketch. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who had gone to Emerson were in the comedy business, you know, yeah. Andrea Martin and Jay Leno before us. Um, oh, I didn't know, you know that. During the time I was there, it was Mario Cantone and Stephen Wright and Dennis Leary and Mike McDonald and, you know, just a million great, not the Mike McDonald from Canada, there's a, ah. you know, but my, and he was a great guy and great comic uh, as well. And, um, but a lot of people were at Emerson. And then after we were gone, it was David Cross and, you know, uh, Jen uh, Kirkman and, uh, Bill Burr, Anthony Clark. I mean, just it's been an amazing group of people who've come and they're still coming out of Emerson. Well, we had this program that we had put together, this comedy workshop, and it was wildly successful. And the school was it was very much like real life, a lesson in real life that the school, the theater department at the school wouldn't let us use the theater. They were jealous of our wild success. Jealous. So you learn how to deal with that. Yeah. You know, these are teachers who are paid to help students and they were pushing us on the back burner because we would sell out all our shows. We were pretty talented. You know, we worked really, really hard. It was really great. Um, oh yeah, this clubhouse, please come visit on that. Yes, yes. Um, so the uh, so we ended up creating this really great show and we were just bummed out that we didn't have the school backing us. So the second year in college, I was uh, there was a meeting at Norman Lear who you know, created all the great television on the family, all the family all the stuff, yeah. on and on and on. And he had gone to Emerson, like Henry Winkler had gone to Emerson. I wow. mean, it's all okay. Who knew? Jennifer Coolidge, go on and on. There's so many great people went to Emerson. Uh, Doug Herzog, who ran the networks, Comedy Central, was at MTV at the beginning. I mean, just on and on and on. People had gone to Emerson. So, um, so I went to Norman Lear and I said, uh, you know, look, we have this comedy thing and the school's not backing us. And he said, well, tell me more. So I told him more. I said, you know, what do you want? I said, well, you know, Jerry Paris, who was the neighbor on the Dick Van Dyke show, went to Emerson. The um, Marilyn Suzanne Miller, who was the head writer at Saturday Night Live, was Emerson's student who's now living in New York and the head writer of Saturday Night Live. We want, yeah, that's exactly right, Diane. It's so easy to make people cry. It's formulaic. And really difficult to make them laugh and yeah, powerful. Right. Thank you, Diane. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, I say that all the time. So that's I believe in that, and I'm glad you brought that up. So anyway, so um, Norman Lear. All of a sudden, I get a call the next day from the vice president of Emerson. What did you say to Norman Lear? I'm like, oh, I just, but I, I'm sorry, I just told him that. Hey. And they go, well, whatever you said, Norman's donating money to the school, and we're matching, and we're gonna have a comedy in the college. We started bringing those people in. You know. Even people that didn't go to Emerson, Art Buckwald, and um, what's his name? His Harvey Miller, who wrote all the odd couples. You know, we had writers and performers, and Jerry Paris came in, and it was pretty, pretty amazing. 
And so then the comedy workshop was successful. It kept continuing to be more successful. Then my class left Emerson, and then they were, had like 10 comedy groups. And we had the Emerson Comedy Workshop, and then it was like more and more. And then um, a few years ago, they and I would go back and teach at Emerson. I would do workshops on the oh. weekends. I'd do like a three-day weekend of workshops, 10 kids each day do like 30 kids every time like well, for 13 years I did that once a year and it was really fun you know because Emerson people like most colleges you look out for your college people yeah and um so then they started this comedy writing department so people and major in it and weirdly enough they didn't ask me to help them even though I you know was like sort of the uh, in a sense the old grandpappy of comedy at Emerson but you know there's egos and that's what you learn in the business you know you do what you do and and they've been very nice to me, um, but they they don't really have me like, you know, but we had a tribute to Norman Lear and they had me sort of host the event um, or do a part of, of the event, which right. was really nice. And, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, whatever I've come up against, it's minuscule compared to the incredibleness that have, I've had in my life. And it's just by speaking up, and I was very shy, you know, comedians mostly are very shy, and then you just I've talk heard that. I've heard yeah. that. Yeah, and that's I their was, outlet. I was very shy growing up, you know. I was really shy, but I knew if I made someone laugh, there was they liked me. You know, girls would like you if you make them laugh or whatever. Yeah, that's, you know. That is and kind the boys of true. Would, yeah, so. You know, and, and so you mentioned Stephen Wright. Um, his such a, a deadpan type of humor. What was he like in real life? I mean, did, did he have expressions? He, he he incredible, yeah, no, he, he's a, he is that guy, you know, in a oh, sense, but okay. it's really who he is, but he's just a brilliant man who is a, a mind that works a certain way. And we've been friends for 42 years, 43 years. And we get together, we laugh like we're, you know, 15. We we're, we've almost gotten thrown out of places because we laugh so hard and we're just laughing too hard uncontrollably. Um, but he, you know, he was just, just a great mind and he, you know, he had, he told me a story recently where he, you know, went to his very first show at the comedy connection in Boston to do his five minutes and he did five minutes and three minutes were good and two minutes weren't. And he was just, you know, banking on the fact that the two minutes didn't work and he was really bummed out and why didn't this joke work? And our friend, Mike McDonald, not mm -hmm. MacDonald, not the one from Canada, but right. the Emerson guy said, but you had three minutes of great stuff, so let's focus on those three and then write two more new minutes, you know? It's like, I told that advice to someone recently because Stephen had just told me that advice. Don't be a bummed at what didn't work out. Take what worked yeah. out and then build on that. So Stephen is an amazing comedian. He has a storybook life that happened from an audition in Boston. The really? Tonight Show saw him on the Carson Show. Carson loved him. Uh, he brought him back the next week um, which was amazing because no comic had ever come back the next week to do stand-up. And he ran out of material after that and had to, had to go hog wild writing more stuff, but he has. And he's, and you know, we're good friends and it's, I know him as a human and you know, I love him dearly. So, you know, it's good. It's good. There's good people. I mean, you'll run into lousy people. You run into people of course. When I was living in LA. There were people who were, you know, trying to undercut me and, and lie and really? say, and yeah, and take you know, but the truth is, is that you just gotta, you know, you gotta be stronger than that if you want want to be in show business, you know. Yeah, and and how did the pandemic affect yourself and and your friends? You were talking show business, pandemic, like that's been really difficult. I know yeah, the I community here was hit hard. So, 
Yeah, I, I remember I was such on a roll uh, before March 14th. Yeah. And I was working at Dangerfields a couple of weeks in a row and had done some other gig somewhere. And I was just on fire. I was just <laughs> had new material and I was just having fun. And and so the night of the 14th um, was a very small audience, the second crowd, because everyone was now nervous about the pandemic. And I went home. I remember I remember the feeling of that night, the loneliness of the city being quiet and taking the subway, which was delayed a lot and just nobody on the subway and just going home and then not doing stand up until October. Uh, a friend of mine, I helped him start a club in Alameda, California, the Alameda Comedy Club, which is an incredibly beautiful venue. We built it together from the ground up um, and made it a comic friendly place. Destroyed for a long time, hurt me. Um, to not be able to do comedy. And I, you know, just ate my issues away. And, you know, I, my first joke I wrote, pandemic joke was, you know, um, when I, before the pandemic, I was at the height of fashion and, and now I'm at the width. You know, <laughs> oh, was, don't say that. <laughs> and by the way, you're not alone. I think a lot of us have, uh, yeah, yeah, gained a lot of us have, knowledge yeah. and other stuff. Yes. Yeah. And I think the reason why is a lot of times you, and uh, so I was doing that and doing that and just miserable and sitting around in my sweatpants and, you know, watching sports. Yeah. At the, there wasn't any sports to watch. So I'm just watching every movie that I could watch. And I wasn't really being creative and I was really miserable. And eventually I kicked myself in the ass and said, how is this serving me? And I decided that um, I would start writing. And I ended up getting a job writing on a film. And I have a oh. I have some really major things in the works right now. Two oh, major projects, of course. You can't discuss them until because there's right. non-disclosure agreements on it. Yeah. But one, I'd be an executive producer. The other one, to be a producer. And then the um, there's a company called um, Connect Connections. Ah, uh, word the word collections. Okay. And word collection. If you go to wordcollections.com, you can find them. There, my manager's husband is great friends with. Um, with this guy and Jeff and Jeff Price. And Jeff Price was a genius in the, you know, sort of like a savant in the world of producing and entertainment. And and he was able to get musicians a ton of their uh, residuals that were held from them by these major companies, you know, the, the big, you know, because they weren't, they weren't getting them. So he got billions of dollars for musicians who were getting sort of ripped off. So he decided to do it for comedy. And found out that yeah. comedians are only like if you have a comedy album or you're being played on the, the air, you'll be paid by Sound Exchange or whatever companies you have yes. in Canada. Yeah. You get paid for your performance, but you don't get paid for the writing. They owe us for the writing. So Word Collections has got together and you know, I've kind of mm -hmm. helped them because it's my manager's, you know, my manager's friend. And and I, you know, we have the George Carlin estate, we have the um you know, Bill Hicks's estate, uh, Robin Williams' estate, and all these very famous, famous people. And then, you know, younger comics who are, are you know, starting out, comics who have been pros during the, the beginning. And uh, there's going to be, you know, a whole financial um, windfall from that. And if you are a comedian who's had stuff aired on these different shows and networks and stuff, well, go to wordcollections.com and sign up because you know, it's not, it doesn't cost anything to do it. It'll, if they make the money for you, you'll 
get the money you deserve. You know, it's kind of cool. And I'm sure they'll take a small percentage or whatever, but it's worth it because it's money you won't get. There's another company who's doing it as well, but they don't, they're they're not giving the comedians the money for the, the written word at all. So if they're, they're, they're not as, they don't, you know, but it's oh, somebody so else. Pax Management, okay. Jenny DeHaye, right. yeah. Yeah, so um, we'll go to word collections. You know, my I've been working in Europe as a comedian in Hong Kong and all over the world, and I have a lot of friends in these different countries, and they are able to join word collections. Like my friend Tommy Tiernan from Ireland, he's a great comedian, great actor, and he joined up with word collections because he his stuff is being played internationally. He's a pretty big star in Canada. He would perform it. I met him at the Montreal Comedy Festival. Oh, put really? him on Letterman, and he's you know so. All these management companies get, get your clients some money. Get in touch with Jeff Price at wordcollections.com. Okay, that's great yeah. to know. So, you know, I saw you on Clubhouse and I see that you're very busy on social media. You do a live on Instagram. You started doing a live on Facebook. I mean, you seem to be loving it. And as yeah, as a matter of fact, on uh, Sunday, you'll be doing the comedy podcast club, Only Joking with Eddie Brill. For those people who have Clubhouse, I, by the way, have seven invites available. So you can message me and I'll send one to you if you have an iOS. Uh, it only works on the iPhone, unfortunately. I heard uh, somebody told me the other day that now it's working on the other phone. On Android? Um, yeah. Not that I know of. That would Not be that great. I know of, but someone said they had an Android and was able to use it. Okay, I don't know if they're out of their mind. Or... I have no idea. Yeah. So what do you think the importance of social media is for a comedian? Well, it gets you exposure. You know, you don't have to be a great comedian. You just be great at marketing and you can get the exposure and get millions of people to follow you. Um, so, you know, it does help. It even helps more if you have the talent, you have the wherewithal to, to do really well. But, you know, it's like that old conundrum. Like, you know, there's somebody, some incredible musician playing their guitar by themselves in a hotel on off a dirt road. You know, the genius who's not making anything. And then there's someone who's just some hack who's doing exactly just not like word for word or sound for sound of somebody else making a fortune. And that's unfortunate. That's how the world is. You can't you can't change that. But, with, you know, I think the, the key really is to, you know, it's to just, you know, keep doing what you do and be original at what you do. And if you want to use the Internet to, to get people, you know, look, look. Dane Cook, at the very beginning of his career, he used the, uh, what was that website? The MySpace. Right. And, oh, my God. Like, ended wrong. up getting millions of followers and made a fortune. And whatever you think of any comedian, um, if you, like Louis C.K., was he didn't right. let a big company sell his concerts. He would offer them for, for free. And if you send $5, that'd be good. And he made a lot of money. You know, you just have to be smart. And, and try different things. So that's why I'm always constantly trying different things. So uh, almost two months ago, I was watching the special on TV about Patrice O'Neill, which was really, really funny. And I remember the date, February 19th, and uh, it was just so good. And in the middle, I took a break and uh, I was gonna go back on to watch it. And I went, ah, just go do a, let me try one of those Instagram live things because I knew other friends who did it. Right. So I did it for five minute, like, oh, I'm watching the Patrice O'Neill thing and it's really great. And it's like 640 people, you know, like, oh, it's pretty cool, whatever. So I started doing it every day and I did like an hour and then I did another hour. And people were like, why are you doing an hour? Do like 40 minutes. Did 40 <laughs> minutes. I go, you know what? So my brother said, why don't you just do 20 minutes every night? You know, if you're going to do it every night, 
you know, I mean, there's so many stories you have, but you're going to run out of stories or ideas or whatever. So uh, I guess a month and a half ago, I cut it down to 20 minutes. And every night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'm doing a, you know, Instagram Live. And I did one tonight that was really yeah. fun. I had such a blast doing it. And then a, a lot of my friends who are on Facebook, they go, we're not on Instagram. Why don't you do one on uh, Facebook? So uh, about four or five days ago, I did one on Facebook. I started talking. And the amount of people on Facebook. I saw that. I was saw like, that. oh, my God. And then so I and I did like 35 minutes. It was way too long. And I was saying the same thing over and over again. I can't believe how many people. I can't believe that I'm going <laughs> to come watch me on the clubhouse on Sunday, whatever. Yeah. And, and it's different on Clubhouse because you they, you hear their voices as opposed to just seeing text. So right. that, as a comedian, that's maybe a little bit more fulfilling or more interesting for you. It's it's just fun to be able to chat with people and hear what they have to say, because I'm on Instagram Live and the text is going by and I'm, oh Betty how are you Susie what's going on Billy hey I haven't seen you in years you know and I'm looking down you know because I'm reading from the thing and on the clubhouse you you know you don't have to wear any clothes it's no right. picture, no video I hadn't thought of that you're right yeah you can be wearing a fig leaf wear your fig leaf and, right. and do your clubhouse. I was about three 30 in the morning. I woke up last night. I had fallen asleep early. I woke up around three 30. I went on clubhouse. I had a blast. There was this room where They're they were doing open. some silly stuff and it was really silly and fun and had new friends from it. And so anyway, so I've done two today. I did my second Facebook live. It was fun. Um, and uh, then I did the, and then I have, of course, the Esther's breeze. Well, you know, on. that was the highlight of your day. It is. Perhaps week. Let's hope not. As mine. a matter of fact, I'm here right now. <laughs> you can't get rid of me, for God's sake. Oh, please go on. You have so much. You know, you should write a book. I hope you're thinking about yeah, doing well, that. Yeah, well, I've written a bunch of, I've written three, over 300 stories that are oh sort of memoir type stories and Letterman stories and kinds of stuff like that. You know, and it's all pretty fun and positive and uplifting and funny and silly and and some, you know, you know, the, you know, the telling some like I the thing we did at the very beginning where I said, well, you know, the comedian gets to choose their own song. You know, right. people don't know that. And, you know, that Dave did the tribute to Johnny Carson. You know, nobody knows didn't know that, that. Yeah. unless they knew that Johnny could do watch Johnny's show all the time. They knew that Johnny would always say, hey, um, you know, you know, let's, uh, you know. I hope you guys are in a good mood tonight. So, you know, that kind of stuff, it's, you know, it's not like, you know, dirty news because I'm not, that's not the kind of guy I am. <laughs> I'm not going to, there's a lot of stuff that'll go with me to my grave and, uh, and, you know, I'm okay we'll with talk it. Because, later. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, the interesting, <laughs> if you come with me to my grave, well, I'll tell, tell the whole thing. No, but the, it's, I think it's important to, to have integrity and to, uh, you know, to not have to share everything, you know, uh, so, but anyway, uh, it's been, it's been a ball. So I'm writing a book and then I think I'm going to write another book about the machinations of comedy and, you know, sort of advice for young comics kind of thing and comics who have experience and how you could take your comedy to the next level. So, but I got a lot of work to do. I got, I'm doing so many things now and hopefully they'll all pay off financially because I'm still hurting because, you know, we haven't gotten the you know. Yeah, the money yeah, that I was expecting to to pandemic money is, is and then you know my family were so close we all took care of each other and you know you have to you have to eat and you have to make sure that your family and friends uh, are all taken care of and I was very blessed by friends of mine who really uh, some of them went above and beyond to take care of me and you know and I did the same Aww. for my family and it's pretty good so so they yeah, have it sweet yeah and now the rollout in the U.S. is much different than in Canada so. Yeah. 
you're double vaxxed. That's, I'm that's, double vaxxed, that's, that's, that's the thing now, not to be double vaxxed. It's cool. Let's. <laughs> we are yeah. not, unfortunately. I I did get one, so I'm semi covered. But and I then saw, in 2025, you get your second one, right? Right. Well, I don't know <laughs> if there's a booster in six months. I'm really not sure how it's going to work. But in the meantime, I saw that you had, was it a poker game with all your friends and there were no masks and you were sitting close together and my mind exploded. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. We we had all chose, we, there was a poker game. There was a poker game at the comic strip in New York City, the comedy club. Okay. And occasionally I would go play poker with them. And one of the guys, Dennis Regan, Brian Regan's older brother, who's a okay. great, amazing comedian in his own right, um, he had a table that he was moving and he had a table. He said, Eddie, why don't you uh, take the table? You can fit in your apartment. I went great. And he says, you know what? Maybe we can start playing poker at your house on my table. And that's <laughs> what it'll be because, you know, it's more fun to be in somebody's apartment than in a comedy club with people walking in and, in and out and you can drink and you can party, you know, that kind of thing, smoke, whatever. And um, so we started a poker game and it just went nuts. And we, it was, it was completely people who weren't famous, like, you know, uh, Sarah Silverman and Jeff Ross and Colin Quinn and, you know, uh, Neil Brennan was my next door neighbor and Jay Moore was my next door neighbor. And there was all these incredible comedians who were just young. We're all young kids and we're, we're playing poker and we're playing poker every, every Monday at my house. I hosted a show at Caroline's every Monday and I'd be done about, I guess, like around nine, quarter to nine. And I jump in the car, a cab and go home. And the poker game was in session because my friend William had the key and he would set it up and I just come, there was a chair open for me and chips in the well and ready to go. And it became this really thing to do. And people from England and Ireland, they heard about the poker game. They'd come to America and they'd write me, they go, look, we're coming in this day. Do you have room at the table? And so we had to have a hierarchy where whoever was originally part of the game, they got the first dibs and then new people came in later and then we got so inundated we had a added a second table in my apartment <laughs> my one bedroom and we had a nintendo machine in one room we had a sega in my bedroom wow. it was pr pretty cool you know um i just found out that brian kiley just texted me i don't know if you know brian kiley no i don't kiley and i'll remember the poker game brian yes. kiley is going to be a guest of mine on the show on the uh, Club Sunday Club yeah. Oh, cool. I just he just I thought of him because he wrote for he wrote he wrote the monologues for Conan. He's one of the few comics who's done Conan, Letterman, and Leno in the Tonight Show. Uh, Tonight Show with Leno, um, and he's one of the greatest comics ever. He had his his joke was the main thread in the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle. He's a brilliant comic who really had a hard time at the beginning because he wasn't a great performer hmm. and a brilliant writer. And eventually right. became a brilliant performer and put the two together. And he has a story. And I figured we'd talk about, if he's available, we talk on the clubhouse about late night television and what it takes to get on these shows and do that. And he just dinged, you were here. And he dinged yeah. and said, he can and do it the dinged. Thing. Yeah, we, right. we all witnessed it. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, it's real. You know, I have this oh, other clip. Okay, well, I'll tell you yeah. about the poker. Just finish the poker thing. Oh, yes, so please continue. That and, then, and the clip. And then, yeah. so we were playing for years and years and years, and the game's really good. Then we hadn't played now in over a year because of the pandemic. Right. We couldn't be sitting together. So all of us got double vaxxed. And when we were double vaxxed, we waited a week, then we played poker this past Monday. And you're allowed to do it without the mask. We had the time of our lives. And we're setting up another one for like May, I think May 10th. 
is our next one. So anyway, there's the poker thing. And all the people, whenever we play, well, like Sarah Silverman's coming to New York City, she'll, she'll send an email and say, is there a game on Monday? And it's like, yeah, there's a game. If there's a game, you know, people will come and play. Liz Winstead and, uh, you know, I mean, the name, just the people who would come uh, from all over, from all over the world would play poker in my house. So uh, it's, it's kind of been a fun thing. And we knew it's not a lot of money because we want everyone to you know, have fun, right. and you know, when when you're playing every week, you don't want one person to get killed. You know, sometimes someone would win a bunch of money, and then they'd lose it the next week, and you know, it didn't really matter. Actually, at the beginning, whoever won the most that night would have to take everyone to breakfast at five in the morning when we were done. Would it last until five in the morning? Is that how and long? In the, the old days, but now the other night we were done like at eleven fifteen. We're like, oh my well, god, long, you know, we've really changed. <laughs> like what's happened? I'm I'm a little tired. Peeking, <laughs> is that a dollar or ten dollars? As you're no, drooling no. onto the cards, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. Let me just backtrack for a second. Did you say without masks? Like you're able if you're double vaxxed yeah, with other? Double vaxxed. You can be in a room with people who are double vaxxed. That's and crazy talk. We wore masks to the party. And then when it was over, we wore a mask again and went out into the world in the masks. Okay. Wow. Amazing. Wow. Felt really good. It was really special. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that oh. feels like. Yeah. Yeah. So I do have this little clip and then we'll cool. ask you a little bit about it. Sounds good. Cats out of the bag. I wonder what that means. Fly by the seat of one's pants is, of course, uh, to decide a course of action as you go along. But what's the origin of that phrase? We all know a skeleton in the closet is a secret source of shame that an individual wants to keep a secret. But what is the origin of that famous phrase? What is the origin of that phrase? I don't remember which I wasn't paying attention because I was thinking of this the story okay. behind that. Um, okay. Yes, please tell us. Well, here's the interesting thing. Emerson College again. There was a guy named Rob Hess who was really a great guy who went to Emerson. Very okay. brilliant producer. He came up with an idea to do a show about the or the origin of words and knows that that's one of my my loves is wordplay and words and yeah. asked me if I would host it. And I said, you know, if I can play a character, I would do it. And I said, I'll, and I had a horrible British accent. But I said, you know, I remember a family affair when I was a kid. Oh, God, I love that on show. TV with Jody and Buffy. Yeah, and I wanted to be Jody or Buffy. I forget. Yeah, I think you wanted to be uh, <laughs> Buffy. I Buffy, think. right. Because you get to have Mrs. Beasley, the doll. Yes, yeah. yeah. Love. And her. Brian Keith played the father. Brilliant yeah. actor, stage actor, and hilarious, and a very funny actor as well. He you know, of course, was in uh, uh, Green Acres, and he oh, was. Yeah. Oh, that's Eddie Albert. I'm thinking the wrong Brian yeah, Keith. But they look was similar. In, was so. in it's a Mad Mad Mad. No, he was in The Russians Are Coming. The Russians Are Coming. It was uh, hilarious in that movie. Yeah. Well, just to show you, it's all the all the Brian's or whatever. But anyway, so um, for to use the character, I figured I'm going to do ask Mr. French, be Mr. French. So I grew the beard for each time we recorded it, and I figured I'd wear a bow tie. And it was interesting because after what I had done, the um, I did the Galway Comedy Festival in Ireland, and it was okay. amazing. And I've done it a few times. And I met this comedian named Danny, who's just the nicest guy in the world, who says 
that him and I, and if the pandemic is frees us up, he's going to give me a tour of my dream vacation is New Zealand to do comedy. And we're going to go from one end of the country to the other, doing little gigs here and there, and then end up doing a big comedy festival. And it's, he's called Danny Mad Hatters is what his name, Nick, but it's Danny. And uh, Danny said to me after we worked together for the very first time, he said, I just love you. And I think you're such a great guy. And I said, I love you. And you're a great guy. And we're like, you know, drunk and hugging and better, his or De Niro's. Yeah. And so but the hug wasn't as good, um, but it was nice. It was, it was just a good guy, just a down earth, funny guy. And he said, I want you to have something from me that you'll always remember me by. And I went, okay. And he had this bow tie that he gave me oh, red and white okay. polka dot bow tie, that I would never wear for anything. And then when I was going to play this character, Professor Goodenwell, because you're making fun of wordplay, good and well. Right. Um, it's all good. It's all well. So um, I wore the tie. So that's Danny's influence on the, that's why I'm wearing the red and white bow, po polka dot bow, bow tie. And we did a few episodes of it and it was good, but it was too long. We would interview people on the street and ask them if they knew the origin of the words. And nobody wanted, people were afraid to answer or they didn't, they weren't funny or, you know, that's why reality TV is not reality TV because if they use regular people, it, it wouldn't be funny. So, um, so we ended up using this improv group and they did little, and they were telling their truths. It wasn't like they were making shit up to try to be funny, um, but it just wasn't good. So we cut it down to a shorter version where I just explain the whole thing. It's called famous phrases and um, it's uh, only good TV, only good dot TV, or you can go to their, um, what do you call it? The, the YouTube page and find it. And it's, they're fun and you know, silly and, and playful and, um, and, I, and they just re-released them again uh, last week. And uh, people have been clamoring, like, oh, my God, Professor Goodwell. You know, it was fun to grow a beard and to be like Mr. French. Hello. And hello, would set, that would be the word that would set me into Mr. French. Hello, Buffy, Jody. You know, uh, hello. And I've been to England a lot. And I have a lot of British friends. But, you know, I, my English impression is like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. You know, it's just, it's just a tad better. But it's... Uh, you know, you could see I go in and out of it, but it's a it was a very enjoyable show, uh, and I had fun because the crew was brilliant. And if you look at it, it's really well shot. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, I can see high the quality, quality everything. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely see that. You were talking about reality show. I I know that you were a little bit involved in Last Comic Standing. Is that correct? Not really. I just you know I was interviewed about that show, and yeah. I was I was angry because the very first year it was fixed, and they had ah. the comedians in advance, and that meant you're kidding. That, I didn't some kid, that. that some kid who was, say, in Madison, Wisconsin, I'm making this up, I'm, I don't know any kid in Madison, Wisconsin, <laughs> and he wants to audition for the show, he never had a chance, or she had never had a chance, and they would get up in the freezing morning, drive all the way to Milwaukee or Chicago, or wherever the audition would be, to um, just be fodder for the reality TV cameras for them, for the, for the to show what they're doing, and they never had a chance, you know, and, and, uh, and I remember Drew Carey and Brett Butler were the, you know, were the judges right. here and they walked out because they were really angry with the fact that they knew that everything was fixed. And then last comic standing changed and people said, should you do it? Well, you know, comedy is, you don't, there's no, you don't judge comedians. You can't really, I ran a comedy festival and I had a comedy competition only to right. bring in audiences, but I paid all the comedians the exact same and said, look, this is a fake competition. We're just making it look like a competition because the audience will fill the crowd. 
and we had to fill 1,200 seats, which we did. And uh, we were able to get, I said, just act like it's a competition because people want that. But the truth is, is you can't compete in art. And that's what was bad about it. But the great thing about Last Comic Standing is you got the exposure, more exposure yeah. on that show than all of the late night talk shows combined. So in a way it's good, but it, you know, they had the ability to fuck with someone's set. Like I remember going to, to one of the nights and they were doing it in New York and there were two comics on and one comic was really brilliant, but maybe not as perfect body as the other person. And that mm -hmm. other person bombed with a better body. I'm just not that that I, I did. I wasn't there making the judgment and the, the, person with the better body was sucked and shouldn't have moved on to the next round. But the, it was really uh, the other per that other person lost the, the person who deserved to win lost. And the crowd was like, huh? And they edited her to make her look like she was not a good comic. And huh. so she, her life is shit. She gets all the shit on or looked at, looked down on by other people because they don't know it's a reality show and that they're, they're, you know, manipulating the, you know, how it looks and the results. So, you know, um, it's a kind of a shame. And so I didn't really like it, but I did recommend comedians to do it because you take the chance to get exposure. And, uh, but, you know, if you look at all the shows, like, you know, Jennifer Hudson or what was her name? The singer who. Yes, she, that's right. She, she, she came she in came seventh. In third or something or second. I don't remember. She came in seventh. Oh, seventh. She was the greatest. She was the great, maybe second, I don't know. She was the greatest singer that's ever been on that show, whatever it's, I forget the name of it already. Uh, the singing show. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, not America's Got Talent. It was uh, no, Star the original. Search. No, I don't even Star Search. I'm really yeah, aging myself was. now. <laughs> yeah. Star Search. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But, um, yeah, so anyway, so it's, you know, it's kind of crap. Um, what'd you say? I didn't hear. Oh, I thought you said the name of the show. Yeah, no, um, they're a little frozen. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's it's getting chilly, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, but no, it's, uh, you know, I just don't think that we should have competitions in art. But, you know, sometimes it's it's helpful to sell something and, you know, but to sell out, it's just, you know, what are you going to do? I'm, I, you know, I don't focus on that. I really focus more on how we can help each other and how we could, be better comics. And that's why I'm doing this show on Clubhouse. Yeah. Plus, I just love it anyway. So there's a selfish American Idol. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you. That was the show. Nice. Yes. Star Search. That's funny. Yeah, I know. I did Star Search. And did and you? Back in 1986. And uh, yeah, it was fun. And uh, I was young and I didn't win, but I gave me the chance to go out to LA and for the first time. And then, yeah. So that whole thing. Um, you, we're off sync a little bit. You're yes, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah there's a little bit of yeah. I'm having a little bit of issues here, but we'll we'll figure it all out. I'll I'll blame like it on the, Fernando because even Fernando's like, um, will you just get this guy off already? <laughs> no, God no, sakes. we're having a blast. <laughs> Thank you so much. You've been a wonderful guest, and I so appreciate you being here. It really it's means a lot. To me. It's funny how we became friends from the clubhouse, and we just you know just some people click, and it's a click on the internet is. It's really hard because you have, you know, you're typing and you're blah, blah, blah. But we just became friends and I was really happy to be able to help, you know. Yeah, guys, this is authentic, by the way. And yes, I'm a little frozen. But yeah, yeah this has all been it, it. We are actually friends and we do actually chat. So, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty good. And then but it just looked like one of those old Japanese movies where you talked and then you're yeah. 
it's, it it's gave it that. I'm getting all these crazy pop-ups and it's slowing everything down, or maybe it's just trying to tell me, okay, we've had enough. Cause it's a, it's a very heavy program StreamYard. So, and you know, if you want, if anyone has a couple of questions, they, before we go, because I don't see any comments. So maybe you're only getting a couple, um, you know, we're doing this and you know, this, uh, you know, okay. American Idol through third each play seven, seven. Thank, thank you. you very much. <laughs> and she's the, she's the greatest singer in the world. So it just shows you the kind of what people say, how awful about the fix show takes courage to stand on stage and reveal your soul. Yes. And, uh, you know, I worked on a, a reality show where they're swapping business, like the husbands were comedians and then they, the wives did stand up and, um, one, one of the wives were incredible at it and the other one wasn't. And they <laughs> starts Fernando supporter. And, um, we had a, they made us lie and make it sound like the other person was pretty good. And, and then we got hate mail from people going, she was better than the one who won. It was like, oh, you don't know what a hatchet job they did on this thing, you know? Yeah. Thanks for coming in, Diane. You uh, you came in with some pretty good uh, statements and some pretty good, uh, and helped us with some answers, which was really great. Yeah, we have a very smart audience. But they're not asking questions. They don't, I would like to try stand up. How do you start? Well, the way to start is you just create, for, say, five minutes of stuff, which is really great. And um, it could be a story, could be anything, just something and go on stage and tell it. And that's, you know, that's the only way to become good at it. And surprisingly, most comedians are very good the first time because they're so in their head and they're so nervous and they just have fun and they don't even know what they're doing. My first time I did well, but then like my third time I bombed so horrifically, but it was, it's worth, it's been worth it all the time. So to try stand up is you just come up with five, three to five minutes of stuff like I said, stories from your life, jokes that you've heard, whatever, just something that represents you and how you feel. And even at the beginning, I was doing a lot of wordplay. I was doing a lot of cartoon impressions, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't, I, the impressions were mediocre and the jokes were, were not there, but I was on stage and I was driving around this sort of vehicle on stage. And eventually uh, my writing got better and my performance got better. That's the way it was, you know. How do we fight stage fright? It's it's very hard. You just it's stage time, stage time, stage time, because they're you know still comics to this day will get nervous before they go on. I'm a little more comfortable these days, and I don't I don't really have the stage fright so much. But every once in a while, it'll, it'll sneak up on me. Very rarely, but every once in a while, I'll get a little bit like, why am I nervous? Why am I? Why is the adrenaline flowing? You know, because I. I was, something is going on mechanically in there. Okay. Okay, what is the average pay rate for first-time stand-up comedian to be on talk shows? In America, or the United States, because you're American, you're America, North America, um, yeah. the, the, the talk shows have unions, and, you know, when I, you know, you, you would make, like, as a, as a guest on a television show, as a stand-up doing original material, I think it's up to, like, $1,200 you get to do it. But I would, at the time when I last did it, I was like around a thousand or so, and I would spend fifteen hundred on the suit because it's a one-time performance, and you want it to look great forever and ever. So I'd spend more money than what I was making on because it was it's money in the bank having a great TV set. First time stand up, sometimes get nothing, sometimes split the door with the other comedians. Can't be about the money at the beginning, you know, especially at the beginning. Um, you might be able to create a some kind of windfall money by doing something that becomes viral. And if that happens, that's really great. But uh, 
it's not about the money. It's got to be about the art, and then the money will come. And that's famous line for do do what you love, and the money will follow. Okay, are you in? Like like green beans. Um, thank you, Sonia. Nice to meet you, Sonia Huggins. Speaking of Huggins, <laughs> there's a Huggin for you, Sonia. Sonia, yeah, I'm gonna phone you. You know, and one of my first jokes, I think I said Tanya from España, and then I said Sonia, I'm gonna phone you. That's how bad I was at the beginning. Thank you, Bobby. I'm a fan of yours too, and your extra use in some of the words. So, uh, so that's great. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Angela. Angelo, nice to meet you. Angelo Neri, great name. It's always about passion, yes. Passion and compassion. Those are the key words there. Um, a couple more questions, and then we'll uh, wrap it up, unless you have more to ask or whatever. My brother just sent me money on Venmo. That's exciting. I lent him money. Got his finally got his check today. So a little information that you don't care about. <laughs> okay. Um, I only see me. I don't see any more questions, but uh, I'll wait till Esther comes back. Maybe she's off on a, on her breeze, um, not using Fabrice. It's okay. She's going to come on my uh, computer now. Okay. Go ahead. All right. Hey, welcome. Hey, I remember you. Yes, <laughs> my <laughs> completely froze. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. But I was answering a couple of questions. Um, oh, wonderful! Keep are going. There any other, are there any other questions that you have there that people asked, and and then we can wrap it if you want. No, I think that's it. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry about the technical difficulties. I don't know what happened. I was having issues with my laptop, but I'll never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna figure it all out. Don't worry. All right, I'm good. Totally good. It's all good. It's not, uh, you know, it's not about that. I hope, I hope that people had a good time and that, um, you know, that if people ever have any questions, feel free to contact me. Um, I'll even give you my email. I'll put it out there. Um, Eddie Comic, E D D I E C O M I C at AOL.com. I know I, it's an old email address, but it works like a charm. People write to me. And if you have any questions about uh, your young comedian, older comedian, and you have questions, feel free to write to me. Don't write any hate mail. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, so that's that. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll keep in touch. You've been Sounds a fabulous like guest. And I'll see you guys on Sunday. Please come visit. All right. Thank you so much and good night. Good night.